0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The legislative session is halfway over, or halfway begun. Lawmakers have less than 60 days to find agreement on big issues like transportation, affordable housing, and finessing a tight budget. Why don't we get a mid-session update from CPR's Vic Vela? He covers the Capitol. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. What's been the pace down there?
1: Well, there's certainly a lot to keep up with under the Gold Dome, and there's a whole lot of questions as the second half gets underway. I'm reminded of the old Grateful Dead song, Casey Jones, Trouble Ahead, Trouble Behind. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Well, the first half of the session had a lot of passionate debate over a bunch of partisan message bills that were destined to die from the get-go. And the coming half has a lot of really important legislation
0: that may actually pass, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Okay, why don't we start with those, as you called them, partisan message bills. Uh, I suppose they're destined to die because control of the legislature is split between the parties.
1: Yeah, that's right. The state house is run by Democrats; the Senate by Republicans. So, what were some of those bills? Well, to name a few, uh, there were marathon hearings on Republican efforts to expand gun access, restrict abortion access, and one that went after so-called sanctuary cities that protect undocumented immigrants. And Democrats did the same thing uh, with resolutions to reinforce their support for women's reproductive rights and for refugees after President Trump's initial travel ban on people from certain countries. I asked Democratic Representative Javon Melton of
2: Aurora, what's the point of all these bills that aren't going anywhere? If you want to begin that progress forward, you've got to kind of first send out that message and begin that conversation. Sure, you may not get it past the first, second or third year, but eventually you can move the ball down the field.
1: And to be sure, Ryan, these kinds of message bills happen all the time. And this session is not unique.
0: But the real work begins in the second half. I imagine a lot of that work will be on transportation. Uh, You reported last week on a bipartisan bill that would ask voters for a sales tax increase for infrastructure. But... Pardon the pun here. Um, Do you see roadblocks ahead for
1: that bill? (laughs) Yeah, lots of potential uh, road metaphors here. Will the bill run on cruise control or end up as roadkill? Those are big questions that we don't have answers to yet. So far, the biggest hurdles are being put up by Republicans. Now, the legislature's top Republican, Senate President Kevin Grantham, is actually one of the sponsors, but there's already dissent from his own party. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chris Holbert does not support the bill, and neither does House Minority Leader. Patrick Neville, who said he would aggressively oppose it. Vic, why don't they like it? Is it a
0: blanket opposition to a tax increase?
1: Well, not quite. Uh, They want to see more cuts to offset the new money. They said if the state is going to ask voters for a tax hike, then the state should at least dip into its own pockets a bit. Mm -hmm. Now, the bill does have some offsets through the easing of vehicle registration fees, and the Colorado Department of Transportation will need to pony up more money from its own budget. But that's not enough for conservatives and the influential Americans for Prosperity is already calling out Republican lawmakers, warning them not to support a tax increase. Uh, So Senate President Kevin Grantham knows this is going to be a tough sell to Republicans who wanted more offsetting cuts.
3: That's going to be difficult. uh, No doubt about it. We strove to get there, but it's a if we're actually going to get into the project list and actually
2: do something as far as fixing some of these projects, revenue neutral Was a difficult place to be.
0: Another big thing coming up in the next few weeks is the budget, right? How how would you summarize lawmakers' tasks there?
1: Well, Ryan, the word yikes comes to mind. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, we knew this was going to be a tough year
0: thanks to a multitude
1: of budget restrictions that are unique to Colorado. Last year, budget writers were able to come up with some innovative solutions to avoid a lot of steep cuts. This year's a different story, though, as lawmakers face an even bigger budget shortfall. Uh, Here's Democratic Representative Dave Young of Greeley, who sits on the Joint Budget Committee. This year, that half-billion-dollar hole is growing not getting smaller uh, as things begin to happen. And uh, that little uh, magic hat with the rabbits in there, there's no rabbits in it anymore. But instead of magic rabbits this year, budget writers actually pulled a monkey wrench out of that hat, thanks to an obscure constitutional provision called the Gallagher Amendment, which uh, triggered a statewide residential property tax cut. Now, that money would have gone towards schools, but more tax cuts mean less money for K-12 to the tune of about $170 million. And it was already going to be a tough budget year for schools. So will all that money come out of the education budget or are lawmakers trying to spread the pain? Well, the JBC is scrambling to make some of that up. Uh, We may have to wait until the budget comes out to find out how they end up balancing
0: everything, which should be by the end of the month. It sounds like lawmakers have their work cut out for them with this budget. And of course, there's a lot of federal uncertainty right now, too. Are budget writers concerned about what may come out of Washington? Absolutely. Yeah, especially if health care changes
1: pass and it includes big cuts to Medicaid. Here's Representative Young again. Where do we come up with the money if the federal government is not sending us the the kind of financing that they had been? Where are we going to come up with that to ensure people are taken care of? Big questions that we don't have answers
0: to. Vic Vella, one bright spot in the state budget may be marijuana taxes. Colorado's been bringing in a lot of those lately. What role will they play? Yeah, that is a bright spot to
1: some extent. Uh, The state has about $30 million that's unallocated. But a lot of lawmakers are trying to dip into that money to fund things like drug treatment programs. But there just isn't enough money to go around from the Marijuana Cash Fund. And Governor Hickenlooper's in on it, too. Uh, He wants to use the money to help house the chronically homeless and other affordable housing efforts. But here's what Republican JBC member Bob Rankin of Carbondale has to say about that
4: which, of course, makes a lot of sense if we had the money to do it. But do we use that money to balance the general fund, or do we start new programs with it? And In my mind, that's very much on the table right now. We haven't made that decision. And
1: actually, Rankin went as far as to predict the governor won't get what he wants from marijuana money. And he's also expressed doubt about the governor's idea to raise marijuana taxes to address
0: some of the budget issues. One more thing on marijuana. There's a bipartisan effort at the Capitol that would allow marijuana clubs. This gives people, tourists especially, a place to legally consume pot. Where does the governor stand on that? Well, Hickenlooper says he wants that bill
1: to ban marijuana from being smoked indoors, but the current version allows local governments to make their own rules on that. Mm. Look, Hickenlooper is being very cautious about expanding marijuana use in general, especially under a Trump administration. Given the uncertainty in Washington
4: that this is not the time, this isn't the year to be out reaching for trying to carve off new turf uh, and expand markets and make dramatic statements about marijuana.
0: Finally, anything else jump out as... I don't know, something to look for in this last half of the legislative session? Yeah, everyone's favorite issue, Ryan, construction defects reform. Construction defects reform. There's a (laughs) lot in that jargon. Remind us what that is again.
1: Oh gosh, this is the eternal fight over whether to change construction liability laws to encourage condo construction. There was a big bipartisan push from legislative leaders at the start of the session to get something done, but it's proven to be difficult. Again, there's a lot of attention right now on a bill that would force homeowners to go to arbitration or mediation instead of the courts, if requested by the builder. It got bipartisan support in the Senate, but House Speaker Crisanta Duran remains skeptical. Uh, she worries it makes it too hard for homeowners to get relief from shoddy construction. So its fate as well as a few other efforts around this issue is uncertain.
0: And for some construction defects becomes a stand in for affordable housing that, Correct. that more condos would bring down the cost. That's so, exactly right. Some of course disagree with that. CPR's Vic Vela, he covers the capital for us. Thanks Vic. Thank you Ryan. <laughs> Dick mentioned there's still a lot of work to do on the state budget, including how much money public schools will receive. Education leaders are bracing themselves because in some districts they may have to close schools. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine has the latest in her series on school finance. A couple of
5: weeks ago, Chris Powell, a parent of two, got an email from her school district superintendent. It warned of a possible budget shortfall, between 8 and $13 million. It was frustration, anger. At first, towards the district. Just thinking, oh, the district is asking for more cuts again after we just passed the bond. Powell helped pass a $350 million bond in her Adams 12 five-star district. Bond money typically pays for school repairs and maintenance. It doesn't pay for teachers, bus drivers, textbooks, and other expenses. For those, you need to pass what's called a mill levy override, an additional property tax increase. After reading the email, Chris Powell didn't know what to think yeah i don't I don't even know who the state, the federal government. It just felt like, We were getting squeezed from all directions. In the email, Superintendent Chris Godowski outlined all the reasons for the budget straits. The main one is continued state budget cuts. Since the recession, more than $5 billion has been slashed from Colorado public schools. Tabor caps on revenue means that money can't be paid back anytime soon. This year, another billion dollars could be added to that shortfall. Second, a different voter-approved amendment will hurt school districts next year, the Gallagher Amendment. It's forcing a property tax adjustment that means millions of fewer dollars in property tax revenues. Superintendent Chris Godowski.
0: We know the combination of increased costs throughout the system, declining enrollment, and reductions in state funding leave us in a spot of having to make at least $8 million in cuts for next year.
5: Public confusion over Colorado's Rubrics Cube-like funding system is growing, and it's showing up at school board meetings in many districts. That I listen to the news
6: across the country.
5: Here's grandmother Stephanie Mason, who heads the PTA at her grandchild's school in Aurora.
6: And all the radio stations talking about how great Colorado is and how much money we have. And now we're talking about $31 million budget cut. Can someone tell me what happened? It's the same in
5: Greeley, Loveland. Here's the school board meeting last week in Douglas County. Our
6: school district has been engulfed in a funding crisis for over six years. With
5: shrinking state revenues, the only option for districts is to go to local with voters. The,
7: with the failure of 3A and 3B...
5: When those efforts fail, there are consequences, as Jeffco board chair Ron Mitchell explained at their recent meeting. The board is closing one school, but may have to close others down the road. And Adams 12 Superintendent Chris Godowski notes that Colorado has turned into a patchwork quilt of districts, those that can pass a mill levy override and those that can't. That exacerbates inequalities.
0: A solution has to come at the state level if we're going to get out of the spot of having Groundhog Day year after year where there's not enough revenue to keep up with growing expenses and demands of serving kids. really feel like a statewide revenue measure needs to happen. So
5: what is going on at the state capitol? One idea, asking voters to return to a system that lets all school districts basically tax at the same rate. And this is where we can go back to the frustration of Adams 12 district mom, Chris Powell. I know our area in particular in Broomfield has the highest mill levy. So taxes with the mill levy are extremely high. She's right. Her school taxes are among the highest in the state, and that's partly because, some would argue, they're subsidizing low mill levies in other districts. Right now, because of Tabor and state law, school districts, through no fault of their own, must levy wildly different tax rates. So take a $250,000 home. The taxpayer in Primero district pays more in school tax. In Aspen, it would be about $90. But in Jefferson County or Adams 12, they'd pay more than $500 in additional taxes. Here's Representative Lang size.
1: My... Jeffco taxpayer is paying six times more than the Aspen taxpayer on the same value home.
5: Bringing equity to school district taxes could raise an additional $378 million through local property taxes statewide. But because of Tabor, such a change would still have to pass muster with voters statewide. In the meantime, school districts must hammer out their final budgets in May. I'm Jenny Brundine, Colorado Public Radio News.
0: And speaking of schools, tomorrow, the future of higher ed in Colorado. How are public colleges and universities here preparing for the not-too-distant day when there may be zero state funding? So tune in tomorrow for that. One other program note, we'd hope to bring you a conversation about military spending today. The president wants to dramatically increase the Pentagon's budget, and Colorado has a big defense footprint, of course. Unfortunately, our guest fell ill, and so that's a story we'll bring you soon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The humanitarian crisis in South Sudan can feel very far away, but to our next guest, it's up close and personal. He has sat with victims and listened to their stories of hunger, rape, and ethnic cleansing. Denver attorney Ken Scott serves on the United Nations Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. He has spent a year investigating atrocities in the war-torn African nation. Tomorrow, his commission will present its findings in Geneva. Ken Scott also serves on the board of a Denver nonprofit that promotes education in South Sudan. He spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis.
6: Ken Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm sure being in South Sudan gave you a much clearer picture of what's happening there. Paint a picture of what you saw.
3: The picture that you see when you go there is one of you know, mass displacement of population increasingly. You see people in refugee camps, IDP, internally displaced person camps, that have very little resources, mostly women and children, uh, in these camps. Uh, the international community is trying to do the best it can, but some of the conditions are, are pretty pretty difficult.
6: Can uh, you give an example of what you saw?
3: You know, you go through – you drive through towns, you drive through villages, like in – there's parts of Wow uh, up in the uh, western Bar, Bar El Gazelle. And uh, parts of the town is just completely empty because the people have been moved out. Uh, other places you see, you know, refugees that are just trying to get by on a day-to-day basis um, – You know, at the same time, you run into people who sometimes are amazingly, you know, friendly and optimistic. Uh, You know, not clear why, but uh, just a real mixture of human experiences. But it's a very tragic, very difficult place uh, in every way from the humanitarian level. Parts of the country was just officially declared in famine a couple of weeks ago. The conflict continues. Everything that looks like a war crime uh, is going on. Uh, So it's a tragic situation.
6: Do you see evidence of famine or did you while you were there? Yes.
3: I mean, you. Uh, some of the, the hardest hit areas now are in um, Upper Nile and Unity States and also in uh, Northern Bar-Ghazal. And um, it's, there just isn't enough food to go around. There's a very high food insecurity rate, malnutrition rate. I think one in five children are suffering from malnutrition.
6: And that area of the country you describe can you place us there?
3: Uh, those are areas in the North Unity and uh, Upper Nile are in the far northeast part of the country, bordering with Sudan and Ethiopia. Uh, Northern Bar is kind of northwest a bit and bordering on Sudan.
6: Sexual assault is a massive problem, your commission has found. How bad is the situation for women in South Sudan?
3: It's very, very bad. I mean, by some accounts, as many as... of women who are now in uh, displacement camps have suffered some form of sexual assault, I mean, which is 70%. I mean, it's a huge number. Unfortunately, because of the way the camps are run and and the surrounding areas, women and girls often have to go out on a daily basis to look for food, to look for firewood. And unfortunately, every time they go out, they put themselves at serious risk. And sadly, some of these events even take place within sight of, of the camps. So it's It's a very bleak situation in terms
6: of the sexual violence there. How are people being held accountable for those crimes?
3: Well, that's really the problem. That's one of the main problems. Uh, They really, for the most part, are not. Um, There have been a very, very small number of uh, military prosecutions of a few foot soldiers. But I mean, the number of prosecutions, which basically you are in the maybe the, the tens or thirty or forty at the most uh, over a three-year period, I mean, pales in comparison to the scope of the what's what's actually going on, and and what ha- to those that have gone on are very. I mean, in terms of low-level actors, no one is holding commanders, uh, senior political people. Nobody's holding any of those people accountable. So it's a serious problem.
6: The plight of children is also really troubling. Um, Both the opposition and the government have recruited thousands of kids to be soldiers in the Civil War. Hmm. The government signed an agreement with the U.N. in 2014 to end the practice. Is there any indication that that's happening? I think it slowed
3: down for a while. I mean, partly in the same, if you will, rhythm of the conflict. I mean, the, the, the level, the intensity of the conflict ebbs and flows, and I think you see the child recruitment follow the same pattern. I think it's gotten some better, at least until recently. Uh, I think the opposition uh, forces have done probably a better job of cutting back on that, whereas I think the government is more still engaged in those things in, in a more substantial way.
6: How do you recruit a child to be a soldier? Are are they forcibly taken from their families? Some of them are
3: forcibly taken. uh, And you have to realize that because of everything we've just been talking about, the economic, the food, the the situation in South Sudan is so dire that sometimes uh, people join the military, even as children, just because you get some food. And it may not be that great, but it's better than nothing. So um, that's a big – that's a huge factor.
6: These numbers are pretty staggering. Nearly 1.5 million people have fled South Sudan. Another 2 million are displaced inside the country. So there's this massive refugee crisis. And I understand that uh, we talked about children. It's particularly tough for them.
3: It's particularly tough, for for obviously, for the women and children. And you're absolutely right. Somewhere between a a fourth to one-third of the entire South Sudanese population has been displaced now, either – Either refugees across international borders or internally. So there's a massive displacement uh, problem. And of course, like everything, it impacts the women and children the most.
6: You work with a Denver nonprofit that promotes education in the country. Mm-hmm. It's called Project Education South Sudan. What's the status of that work now that the country has gone into such disarray?
3: Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the principal focus of that work is in the, a city called Bor, which is in uh, Jonglei State. And at least in the last couple of years, it's been a – by South Sudan standards, it's been a fairly peaceful, stable area. There has been serious violence in the past, but fortunately not in the last couple of years. So fortunately, we've been able to continue doing our work there. There are active, um, active programs to educate girls, to mentoring girls that just makes a huge difference in their lives. Do you see the conflict spreading or staying contained? One of the problems in South Sudan is that the conflict has spread. For a long time, uh, the conflict was primarily focused in the north of the country, again, the northeast and to some extent the northwest. But the equatorias, which are the states, the historical states in the south of the country, were for most of the conflict peaceful until about uh, nine or or ten months ago or so. Uh, then the conflict is spread there as well. So, one of the real problems is that the conflict is spread throughout other parts of the country, other ethnic groups, which has really become a much broader and deeper issue.
6: The executive director of Project Education South Sudan has been on this program over the years. Daniel mm-hmm. Majakai fled Sudan in the 1980s. He was part of a group known as the Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. What's it like for that generation to see this whole new batch of, of lost children being created?
3: Well, I mean, it's very disheartening because I th- all that generation of so-called of the lost boys really hoped that th- that's, this pattern would not be repeated. And so they, many of these people who did come to the U.S. and other places who've returned had high hopes. I mean, as many people did when South Sudan became fully independent in 2011 – So to see this happening now to another generation of young people is very discouraging. But they're still trying, you know, they're still in there fighting the battle.
6: Is it similar to what happened back then where young boys were separated from their families and ended up, you know, in the bush trying to get to safety?
3: Broadly speaking, I mean, it's not that the boys per se are being singled out, but again, given everything that's happening in the country, and attacks on civilians. I mean, armed groups come into a village, they destroy the village, they separate the population, people scurry into the bush for safety, and in the process of doing so, obviously families become separated. So in that sense, it's not dissimilar.
6: If you're just joining us, Ken Scott of Denver is a member of the three-person United Nations Commission investigating human rights abuses in South Sudan. They'll present their findings in Geneva tomorrow. You mentioned people starving. What's happening with food relief efforts? Are they able to get in? There's a tremendous problem. I mean, there's a, there's a
3: couple of different problems for the humanitarian uh, agencies, organizations, because, well, number one, it's a very difficult country just to get around in. There are very few roads, and especially in the rainy season, most of those roads become virtually impassable. So, one, is just the sheer transportation and logistic issues in the country, However, in addition to that, uh, the government typically blocks access. Just recently, they have claimed because of the famine, declaration of famine, they've claimed to provide full access to any part of the country where humanitarians want to go. But in reality, that's not the case. Humanitarians are are blocked virtually every day from getting to places that really need desperate help.
6: Your report says that much of this violence targets people based on their ethnicity Mm -hmm. And you warn that the civil war can act as a, quote, smokescreen for genocide. Mm. What does that mean?
3: Um, let me say that uh, there's been a number of comments made in the last six months about genocide uh, in South Sudan. We're not there yet. And I, I, I want to be careful because that's sometimes not, not by you, but I mean, sometimes been a little bit misreported. There's certainly the potential for it. Short of that, there is ethnic cleansing going on, being, meaning there is a lot of killing, a lot of displacement based on ethnic lines. Uh, there are something like fifty-four or sixty-four tribes, different tribes in South Sudan. So it's ma- that the tribal distinctions are massive. The big, the big tribes uh, or ethnicities are the Dinka and the Nuer and the uh, Shuluk. and so there is a lot of Dinka on Nuer violence, uh, maybe a little bit less the other way, but. One of the things we've noticed, and I've been going to South Sudan now for about three years, is that the ethnic dimension has gotten worse over time. It didn't used to be so much that way, but now increasingly it has become more and more ethnic.
6: You've seen your share of human rights abuses. Um, You prosecuted war crimes for the former Yugoslavia. How does that situation compare to South Sudan?
3: You know, it's a very good question. And, and And it looks a little bit different. Obviously, the human suffering ultimately is the same. In terms of families being destroyed, property being destroyed, um, sexual violence, uh, men in particular in concentration camps—you know—looks Europe looks a lot different than Africa. And and I've traveled extensively in the former Yugoslavia, and you're still in Europe. As bad as things were, you didn't have this sense of just like the widespread famine, the, just the people on the roads, you know, in transit to trying to get somewhere else. In some ways, and I, again, not to minimize at all what happened in Yugoslavia, but when you see what's happening in in South Sudan, um, it's just more stark. It's just, I mean, people just fighting for survival.
6: What's the first step yeah. in trying to fix this?
3: I think there's two things that have to happen in the near term. There was a peace agreement uh, signed in August 2015. There's a great deal of debate whether that agreement is dead or Uh, If not on life support, under any scenario, it is in very bad shape. The current government is really in no sense – in no valid sense a transitional government that was intended. It has really reverted to the same government that it was prior to the peace agreement. By all indications, government-aligned forces continue to commit what appear to be war crimes, serious war crimes. And as I said earlier, they continue to block humanitarian aid. So things, as we've been discussing, are really dire I think two things have to happen. One is the regional organizations such as the African Union, the regional states, together with the broader international community, including the U.S., has got to bring uh, pressure to bear to bring the parties back together again to reinvigorate a political process that is truly inclusive. Uh, That means all the stakeholders, not just the the political elites and and, uh, all the factions, all the opposition groups... And uh, they have to be brought into some political space, not manipulated by the government, but where there can be free dialogue on the future of the country in a space where people are free to speak uh, without being afraid of retaliation or reprisals. That's one thing that has to happen. And the second thing is uh, and related back specifically to, to my sort of part of it is accountability. One of the root causes of the current conflict is is an historical lack of accountability uh, in the country over many, many years. The only way that's going to change is if the people of South Sudan see accountability really happening.
6: The U.S. supported South Sudan becoming independent in July of 2011. Does that give the U.S. a special obligation right. Right. to step in?
3: I th- I think so. I mean, as you just said, the U.S. played a major role in giving birth to that country. I mean, certainly the problems are diverse and originate in many different ways. So it's not the fault of the U.S., but as you say, the U.S. played a major Role And I think does bear a special responsibility. And I think it's caused a certain amount of awkwardness because, um, you know, when South Sudan became independent uh, after the referendum in 2011, there was great hope both in terms of the people of South Sudan and on behalf of the international community that this was, uh, you know, a, a new country with a bright future. They have, they're blessed with many resources, oil, agriculture. And this could be the beginning of something really good. And so there's great disappointment and even despair that that hasn't happened.
6: How optimistic are you that uh, things will turn around? It really The honest answer depends on the day.
3: <laughs> I mean, there are some days uh, where you look at something, you talk to people, and you just kind of come away shaking your head and say, how will this ever change? Because, again, as we've been saying, the, the problems are massive. I mean, inflation is 900 percent. People are starving. Uh, the armed conflict continues. Uh, But on the other hand, then you see people that are doing their best to get by and survive. And you just say, we got to keep trying. And we've had people, you know, I've had people just walk up to me and say, please help us. Please help us. Tell our stories. Go back and make a difference.
6: That keeps you going. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.
0: Denver attorney Ken Scott is a member of the U.N.'s Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. Its three members will present their findings tomorrow in Geneva. Scott is also on the board of a Denver nonprofit that supports education in South Sudan. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An iconic voice in rodeo fell silent earlier this month when Hall of Fame announcer Hadley Barrett died unexpectedly. The Coloradans spent more than 60 years behind the microphone at rodeos across the country. Here's just a taste.
4: Welcome to Rodeo Austin. Well, by the way, we're happy to bring you some of the history.
0: Of that rodeo is from KXAN-TV last year. Many other top announcers learned from Barrett, including his son-in-law, Randy Corley, and his friend, Wayne Brooks. They're on the phone from Rodeo Austin, where Brooks was supposed to share the announcer's booth with his late friend this week. And gentlemen, thank you for being with us.
4: Good morning. Thank you for having us. Yes.
0: Randy, what made Hadley Barrett stand out?
4: Well, in the announcing game, I think, And what I've heard, I mean, I still get calls every day of people that, uh, you know, are sending their sympathy. He, uh, I don't think he ever met a person, whether it was through the microphone or in person, that he wasn't a friend to. He, and it was just a pretty natural thing. Uh, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him. I just believe that uh, that's one of the big things. The other is how well that he'd relate to the fans. I mean, that's, he knew that they were important. He knew there was a fine line uh, between too many stats and letting them have fun. You've got to let the fans have fun, too. But you've got to make the Cowboys, the livestock, the best Cowboys, the young Cowboys, all of them. You've got to have something good for them.
0: He does have a very warm delivery, and so it sounds like what you're saying is that was his natural state of being, was warmth and, um, and I suppose, kindness. Uh, Wayne, as we said, Hadley Barrett was supposed to be with you in Austin this week. What was it like working with him?
8: You know, it was always, always a learning experience because uh, something you just said a moment ago was uh, a natural ability that he had that I don't think can easily be emulated. He had warmth and a and a, a love for the game that shined through every time he turned the microphone on. And so uh, that that's something that here in the last week or so I've certainly stuck by my story with in the fact that he loved the business and he had a passion for the business. And uh, he may have been the biggest rodeo fan in the world. Yes. I think that was one of the things that helped helped him have that warmth and that delivery and that Friendly tone that happened every day.
0: For those listening who may not know rodeo very well, can can you explain what the job of announcer is, Randy? Um, you gave us a, a bit of a hint there, but let's let's yep. be more specific.
4: Well, it's it's really easy. First off, <laughs> you you've got to do a lot of homework uh-huh. every day. It's not something you walk up and just start talking. Uh, we don't have the luxury of stat uh, statisticians that are helping us. We do our own work. Wayne and I work together. Uh, We go find facts, share facts and things like this. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process, but the job is that you represent the rodeo. You're at every rodeo that you work is as important as the last one or the next one you're going to go to. And uh, as I said, a minute ago, it's, And Hadley's philosophy was that the rookies and the champions were equally important. You know, so you need to make them look good. The livestock we have, uh, the Butler and Son Rodeo Company, Colorado knows them well. They do the uh, Greeley Rodeo over the Fourth of July. Yeah, they're the biggest. They're the the best contractor in the game. They run a good show. So uh, it's it's uh, real easy to forget how important that livestock is. So we do homework on livestock as well. See if we have any rematches or anything like that. But ah, that's,
0: that's fascinating. That's you, ha- you have to know not only the writer, but the animal. And so the, the job of announcer, in a way, is doubled.
4: Well, it, it might even be more than that. And Wayne would tell you, too, that you know we have also the sponsors that we've got to slide in, and we don't like to do hard commercial reads. We like to use their name, and you know. Uh, if somebody got off and their boot came off, you know, it's a, another trip to the boot barn to repair and get get himself a new pair of boots. Well, you've thrown in one of the sponsors.
0: Very subtle.
4: Try to do it natural.
0: We are talking about a pro-rodeo Hall of Famer, uh, yep. and I want to say that that he also competed in rodeo. Uh, Hadley Barrett did. Wayne, I I think you competed on the circuit with him.
8: You know, excuse me. He was, uh, uh, of course, a a senior to me. So the time frame would have been different. But yes, we both competed. And I think that's one of the things that helped him uh, stay in touch with the contestants is knowing exactly what they're going through, knowing what's going through their minds. Uh, This is a rough and tumble world that we live in here. And so being able to talk firsthand about, uh, you know, what that bucking and horse or what that bull's doing or what that roper is thinking as he's backing in the box, getting ready to do his job, uh, lended quite an insight and an inside look at, at what the contestants are, are thinking about, what they're preparing to do, what their, uh, you know, pregame routine may be. And, uh, that's a that was an important part of what hadley brought to the table as not just an announcer but uh as as a big fan of the game yeah
0: in 1989 hadley barrett was the announcer the day that lane frost died in a bull riding accident at Cheyenne Frontier Days in neighboring wyoming uh his death reverberated certainly beyond the rodeo community uh how did that affect your father-in-law randy
4: you know I think you have to call it all in a day's work, basically. I mean, that's a tough thing to say, but I was uh, leaving a rodeo in Monta Vista, and I actually drove out to the East Plains, and I stayed in Eads, Colorado. Yeah. And and we didn't have cell phones, and we weren't using them. And I got a motel room, and I called Hadley because I wanted to get the winners of Cheyenne. I had a rodeo the next night in Hill City, Kansas and uh, he said the first thing he said i called him i said hadley had who's the champions and he said well first off we've got some bad news he said lane frost uh, was injured and passed away uh and, you know and that that's something that hit all of us in the business pretty hard cuz lane was an awful good guy but for hadley that day he didn't know that lane had died until after the rodeo was over oh. So I think it hit him just like it did all of us. You had to go the next day knowing that uh, there was going to be a lot of news coverage of it because Lane Lane and Tuff, they did a lot of shows. The George Michael sports machine followed them quite a bit. and uh, And they were pretty popular. Even back in that day, a lot more widespread to other sports because of that George Michael show. So it affected, like you said, it went beyond rodeo.
0: Right. Mainstream yeah. sports coverage, if you will. Yes, uh, yes. Wayne, just briefly, would you say that rodeo has changed a lot in, in the time that Hadley Barrett saw it?
8: It absolutely has. We've we've seen lots and lots of changes uh, just since I've been around in, say, 20 years or so. But Hadley, of course, spanned uh, the business for 40 or 50 years. And so... We've seen changes in all aspects of our game, including production and technology and cameras and big screens and internet and live streaming and all those things. But I think probably one of the biggest changes is money. Uh, where we are sitting here today, and Randy and I are working together at Rodeo Austin, right. this, as it is true with probably 90% of the places that we go, it's a non-profit organization. So uh, this past year, a rodeo of this caliber will put, say, $2 million back into the community in the form of scholarships or monies to buy animals and things like that. So we've seen that change quite a little bit, and therefore it has heralded a new young group that are, uh, you know, more focused and and more ready to tackle the game as far as uh, their training, uh, physical fitness, mental fitness, uh, very serious because... We paid out a, a total of $50 million to the Cowboys and Cowgirls last year in pro right. rodeo. So that's that's certainly a big change that's been a positive one.
0: Well, Hadley Barrett was announcing right up to the end of February. His last rodeo, yep. I think, was in San Antonio. And, Randy, you were there with him. As yep. a parting word here, I want to hear something that he said on the local Fox station in San Antonio a couple of years ago. If I could make him
4: a young man reach down and take his four-year-old kid by the hand. And then when the rodeo's over, I see him walking out the gate, smiling, laughing. That's the deal for me. I've been there, done it then.
0: Randy Wayne, thanks so much for helping us remember your friend and family member.
4: Thank you. Thank you all very much.
0: Wayne Brooks and Randy Corley are professional rodeo announcers. We talked about Hall of Fame announcer Hadley Barrett of Kersey, Colorado. That's east of Greeley. He died earlier this month at age 87. See photos of him at cprnews.org. Later this week on Colorado Matters, my conversation with Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr. She's 95 and lives in Denver. Starr managed to stay alive in a long string of concentration camps, including Auschwitz. But before that, she spent five years in a Jewish ghetto in Woj, Poland. One of her jobs there was to take apart clothing that had been sent back from the camps.
4: We ripped it open. We have little scissors and little knives. Take the garments apart, take the gold and diamonds, and all domination money from the whole world.
0: That is, clothes would be sent back from the camps. Yeah, from Auschwitz,
4: I brought it to Lodz.
0: And these are the clothes that people would have been wearing to the camps and would have been stripped of, and they were hiding their belongings in those coats. Sure, everybody. It was not the shoulders, every place.
4: We put the diamonds in big, huge jars, the gold pieces in big, huge barrels.
0: That is an excerpt of my conversation with Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr. She lives in Denver. The full interview airs later this week. This is Colorado Matters. Photographer Joseph Collier was famous in the late 1800s for his images of Colorado, from shots of downtown Telluride to Garden of the Gods to the Brown Palace Hotel. More than a century later, his great-great-grandson Grant Collier photographed the exact same spots. Grant Collier talked about his new book,
7: Colorado Then and Now, with Nathan Heffel.
2: Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh,
7: Joseph Collier was born in Scotland in 1836, went to school for chemistry for a little bit, and then eventually became a blacksmith. Uh, But this debilitating work uh, caused him to kind of look into photography. Tell us a little bit about Joseph. How did his work go beyond the traditional photography of that time?
2: He was always always experimenting with different techniques. Uh And one big thing he did was uh, he did photographic enlargements. At the time, people could usually just printed the images at the same size as the negatives but he really wanted to make some really big prints so he actually built his own solar camera, which is what it, basically the same as a, an enlarger today.
7: So he came to Colorado, where he lived in Central City and then in Denver, and we know that Joseph was well-known during his day. In 1873, he presented stereographic images of Colorado to the First Lady of the U.S., Julia Grant, and newspapers of the day called his work some of the finest specimens of stereoscopic views ever seen. Can you give other examples of how he became to be so well-known?
2: Yeah, that's one of the big things with the stereo views, which were actually, for uh, people who don't know, there were two images uh, printed side-by-side, side with uh, taken with a camera with two lenses mounted about three inches apart, and if you used a, stereo, a stereoscopic viewer, you could actually view the images in 3D, which is really cool to think that way back then they were doing 3D images, and I actually have a stereo view, viewer of my own, and I've... View some of his images, and it's really cool to see the 3D effect. There is a really strong 3D effect. When he moved to Denver, he was was he part of the city's
7: high society? I, I know he lived next to uh, Denverites Horace and Baby Doe Tabor, the the well known but scandalous millionaires.
2: Yeah, I don't think you really knew them. I know he lived near them. but okay. uh, Yeah, I don't think I don't think he was part of the high society. He he seemed to be a pretty uh, a frugal frugal person and uh, a.
7: <laughs> but to live next to them, of course, was quite the yeah <laughs> yeah
2: yeah. So it was a
7: <laughs> you, you were. Great-great-grandfather took hundreds of photographs in Colorado of everything from mining towns to mountain vistas. Why did you want to recreate his photographic steps?
2: Um, I guess growing up, I sort of always knew about his images. And then I got a job digitizing thousands of Colorado photographs, including a lot of his. And that really got me interested in his photographs. And I just wanted to sort of see how things had changed since he had taken his images, and I decided I might as well take my camera with me and record, record some of his images. And I was still in college way back then when I was doing that, but it sort of uh, grew into a bigger project as I really got uh, got to know his photographs.
7: So, did you take up photography strictly to to follow his footsteps, or were you into photography before?
2: No, I had gotten into pho- photography a little bit before that, and mm-hmm. I figured it'd be a good way. When I decided to try to make a living as a photographer, I decided to be a good way to get myself established as a photographer.
7: And Grant, you found similar or exact spots where Joseph took his photos over 100 years ago. Is there an area that you photographed that looks strikingly similar or strikingly different?
2: Yeah. Well, obviously, Denver looks a lot different today because they destroyed uh, most of the buildings to make room for apartment complexes and high-rises. And so that's the starkest difference by far. A lot of the color of mountain towns haven't changed a whole lot, like Idaho Springs, um, even places like Central City, although um, there's a ton of gambling going on right now, but a lot of the historic buildings in Central City are very similar. In uh, Blackhawk is a lot different because now there's some huge casinos there. So they've really taken divergent uh, uh, courses in, since gambling has has emerged
7: has technology helped? You say you've you found you've know, used Google Maps and things to find sites. Has technology helped you? Because some of these places are kind
2: of often you know you have to take a hike. Yeah, yeah, it definitely helped me a lot. In my first book, it was uh, I started in nineteen ninety five, and so the internet was fairly new, and I couldn't find a lot of information then. So it was a lot harder to find the locations. Uh, the second book, which I just uh, released. Uh, this last month, it was a lot, quite a bit easier because yeah, I could get online, get on Google, or sometimes I find the exact spot that he was standing before ever leaving my house. And I just enter the GPS coordinates and go right there. So it definitely, uh, even in twenty years time, it's definitely changed, <laughs> it made it a lot, lot, easier. What
7: is one of your favorite photos? There are about how many, like two hundred or something, photos that you may have taken, you know, side by side. And
2: yeah, yeah, there's uh, yeah, yeah, probably two hundred. T- Total then and now between my first and second book, yeah. uh, the more recent has close to a hundred. So which one stood out
7: for you? Which one you're like, wow, that's that's a great story.
2: Yeah, uh, there's there's definitely uh, quite a few that are that are interesting. Um, one taken in Garden of the Gods, there were uh, people camping right between Garden of the Gods and Glen Erie. and I was uh, trying to find the exact spot, and I was sure I was right near the. Quick location, but the mountains just didn't match in the two shots. And I've learned that mountains don't change over a 100 <laughs> years. <right? laughs> and then I went home and I, I looked it up and I found that the Queens Canyon quarry had actually taken a big chunk out of the mountain. So I realized I wasn't going crazy and I was at the right spot. <laughs> but, yeah, the mountain, it, it's actually now called Scar Mountain. So it, the mountain had been chopped off. And that really surprised me because I w- wasn't expecting that So. <laughs> And you found this has brought you
7: closer to your, your family history.
2: Yeah, it definitely has. I've, uh, I have re- wrote the book as well as second to the photographs. And so I did a lot of research on Joseph Collier. And especially with the second book, I was able to find a lot more information online that I couldn't find before. And it really made me appreciate all that he did back then as it was so much more difficult to take photographs back then than it is today, obviously. And so it, it has uh, – I, I do have a lot more appreciation for what he did. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you.
0: CPR's Nathan Heffel speaking with author and photographer Grant Collier. His book, Colorado Then and Now, recreates photos his great-great-grandfather Joseph took. This is CPR News.